Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lightspeed. Hi, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, John Joseph Adams. Our story this week is a special bonus podcast. It's a story of ours that originally ran in our August 2010 issue, Arvies by Adam Troy Castro. Arvies is currently a finalist for the Nebula Award, so our friends at Starship Sofa decided to adapt it to audio. This recording originally appeared in Starship Sofa number 181. It's read for you by Christy Yant. For those of you unfamiliar with the sofa, here's a transmission sent over by Captain Tony C. Smith. Attention, citizens of the internet. This is a message from beyond cyberspace. Look to your personal data devices for contact from Starship Sofa, the first Hugo Award-winning podcast in history. Thrill to interrogations of many of science fiction's greatest minds. Ray Bradbury, Robert Silverberg, Frederick Pohl, Jack Vance, Gene Wolfe, Ursula K. Le Guin, Samuel Delaney, China Mieville. Wonder at inspired narrations of astonishing short stories, novellas, and novelettes by Michael Moorcock, Joe Haldeman, John Scalzi, Bruce Sterling, and a galaxy of other writers. Be amazed by mind-expanding fact articles, looking back at genre history, science news, film talk, graphic fan, fiction crawler, Tau Ceti radio, everything. Witness the exploits of this amazing online community as they explore science fiction and fact in literature, art, film, television, music, and media. Join Captain Tony C. Smith and the crew for all of their astounding adventures in multidimensional cyberspace at www.starshipsofa.com. Be sure to read their many past tales in Starship Sofa Stories Volumes 1 and 2 and The Captain's Log, which are also available on board. And Starship Sofa, ending transmission. So that's Starship Sofa. So if you're interested in podcasts and listening to stories, you should check them out. So our story for this episode is by Adam Troy Castro. Adam Troy's 17 books include Emissaries from the Dead, a winner of the Philip K. Dick Award, and The Third Claw of God, both of which feature his profoundly damaged far-future murder investigator, Andrea Court. His next works will be The Alphabetic Primers, Z is for Zombie, and V is for Vampire, both illustrated by Johnny Atomic. His short fiction has been nominated for five Nebulas, two Hugos, and two Stokers. Adam Troy, who describes the odd hyphen between his first and middle names as a typo from his college newspaper that was just annoying enough to embrace with gusto, lives in Miami with his wife Judy in a population of insane cats. I hope you enjoy the story, and if you do, I hope you go to our website at lightspeedmagazine.com and leave a comment. Just click on fiction, find this story, and then leave a comment there. Or if you'd like to help spread the word, go to iTunes, find the Lightspeed Magazine story podcast, and leave a review or rating there. Well, that about does it for this week's intro, so without further ado, let's make the jump to Lightspeed. Arvies by Adam Troy Castro Statement of Intent This is the story of a mother, and a daughter, and the right to life, and the dignity of all living things, 
and of some souls granted great destinies at the moment of their conception, and of others damned to remain society's useful idiots. Contents Expect cute plush animals and amniotic fluid and a more or less happy ending for everybody, though the definition of happiness may depend on the truncated emotional capacity of those unable to feel anything else. Some of the characters are rich and famous, others are underage, and one is legally dead, though you may like her the most of all. Appearance We first encounter Molly June on her fifteenth death day, when the monitors in charge of deciding such things declare her safe for passengers. Congratulating her on completing the only important stage of her development, they truck her in a padded skimmer to the RV showroom where she is claimed, right away, by one of the living. The fast sail surprises nobody, not the servos that trained her into her current state of health and attractiveness, not the AI routines managing the showroom, and least of all Molly June, who has spent her infancy and early childhood having the ability to feel surprise, or anything beyond a vague contentment, scrubbed from her emotional palate. Crying, she'd learned while still capable of such things, brought punishment, while unconditional acceptance of anything the engineers saw fit to provide brought light and flower scent and warmth. By this point in her existence, she'll greet anything short of an exploding bomb with no reaction deeper than vague concern. Her sale is a minor development by comparison, a happy development, reinforcing her feelings of dull satisfaction. Don't feel sorry for her. Her entire life, or, more accurately, death, is happy ending. All she has to do is spend the rest of it carrying a passenger. Vehicle Specifications you think you need to know what Molly June looks like. You really don't, as it plays no role in her life. But as the information will assist you in feeling empathy for her, we will oblige anyway. Molly June is a round-faced, button-nosed gammon, with pink lips and cheeks marked with permanent rose, her blonde hair framing her perfect face in parentheses of bouncy, luxurious curls. Her blue eyes, enlarged by years of genetic manipulation and corrective surgeries, are three times as large as the one's imperfect nature would have set in her face. Lemur-like, they dominate her features like a pair of Pacific jewels, all moist and sad and adorable. They reveal none of her essential personality, which is not a great loss, as she has never been permitted to develop one. Her body is another matter. It has been trained to perfection— with the kind of punishing daily regimen that can only be endured when the mind itself remains unaware of pain or exhaustion. She has worked with torn ligaments, with shattered joints, with disfiguring wounds. She has severed her spine and crushed her skull and has had both replaced, with the same ease her engineers have used fourteen times to replace her skin with a fresh version unmarked by scars or blemishes. What remains of her now is a wan amalgam of her own best-developed parts, most of them entirely natural, except for her womb, which is, of course, a plush, wired palace, far safer for its future occupant than the envelope of mere flesh would have provided. It can survive injuries capable of reducing Molly June to a smear. In short, she is precisely what she should be, now that she's fifteen years past birth, and, therefore, by all standards known to modern civilized society, dead. Heroin. Jennifer Axioma Singh has never been born, and is therefore a significant distance away from being dead. She is, in every way, entirely typical. She has written operas, climbed mountains, enjoyed daredevil plunges from the upper atmosphere into vessels the size of teacups, finagled controlling stock in seventeen major multinationals, earned the hopeless devotion of any number of lovers, 
written her name in the sands of time, fought campaigns in a hundred conceptual wars, survived twenty regime changes, and on three occasions had herself turned off so she could spend a year or two mulling the purpose of existence while her bloodstream spiced her insights with all the most fashionable hallucinogens. She has accomplished all of this from within various baths of amniotic fluid. Jennifer has yet to even open her eyes, which have never been allowed to fully develop past the first trimester, and which still, truth be told, resemble black marbles behind lids of translucent onion skin. This doesn't actually deprive her of vision, of course. At the time she claims Molly June as her RV, she's been indulging her visual cortex for seventy long years, zipping back and forth across the solar system collecting all the tourist chits one earns for seeing the wonders of modern-day humanity from the scrimshaw carving her immediate ancestors made of Mars to the radiant face of unborn Jesus shining from the artfully reconfigured multicultural atmosphere of Saturn. She has gloried in the catalogue of beautiful sights provided by God and all the industrious living people before her. Throughout all this, she has been blessed with vision far greater than any we will ever know ourselves, since her umbilical interface allows her sights capable of frying merely organic eyes— and she's far too sophisticated a person to be satisfied with the banal limitations of the mere visual spectrum. Decades of life have provided Jennifer Axioma Singh with more depth than that. And something else. A perverse need, stranger than anything she's ever done, and impossible to indulge without first installing herself in a healthy young RV. Ancestry Jennifer Axioma Singh has owned RVs before, each one customized from the moment of its death. She's owned males, females, neuters, and several sexes only developed in the past decade. She's had RVs designed for athletic prowess, RVs designed for erotic sensation, and RVs designed for survival in harsh environments. She's even had one RV with hypersensitive pain receptors, that during a cold and confused period of masochism. The last one before this, who she still misses and sometimes feels a little guilty about, was a lovely girl named Peggy Sue, with a metabolism six times baseline normal and a digestive tract capable of surviving about a hundred separate species of nonstop abuse. Peggy Sue could down mountains of exotic delicacies without ever feeling full or engaging her gag reflex, and enjoyed taste receptors directly plugged into her pleasure centers. The slightest sip of coconut juice could flood her system with tidal waves of endorphin-crazed ecstasy. The things chocolate could do to her were downright obscene. Unfortunately, she was still vulnerable to the negative effects of unhealthy eating, and went through four liver transplants and six emergency transfusions in the first ten years of Jennifer's occupancy. The cumulative medical effect of so many years of determined gluttony mattered little to Jennifer Axioma Singh, since her own caloric intake was regulated by devices that prevented the worst of Peggy Sue's excessive consumption from causing any damage on her side of the uterine wall. Jennifer's umbilical cord passed only those compounds necessary for keeping her alive and healthy. All Jennifer felt, through her interface with Peggy Sue's own sensory spectrum, was the joy of eating. All she experienced was the sheer, overwhelming treasury of flavor. And if Peggy Sue became obese and diabetic and jaundiced in the meantime, as she did, enduring her last few years as Jennifer's RV as an immobile mountain of reeking flab, with barely enough strength to position her mouth for another bite, then that was inconsequential as well, because she had progressed beyond prenatal development, and had therefore passed beyond that stage of life where human beings can truly be said to have a soul. Philosophy Life True life, 
lasts only from the moment of conception to the moment of birth. Jennifer Axioma Singh subscribes to this principle and clings to it in the manner of any concerned citizen aware that the very foundations of her society depend on everybody continuing to believe it without question. But she is capable of forming attachments, no matter how irrational, and she therefore felt a frisson of guilt once she decided she'd had enough, and the machines performed the cesarean section that delivered her from Peggy Sue's pliant womb. After all, Peggy Sue's reward for so many years of service, euthanasia, seemed so inadequate, given everything she'd provided. But what else could have provided fair compensation, given the shape Peggy Sue was in by then? Surely not a last meal. Jennifer Axioma Singh, who had not been able to think of any alternatives, brooded over the matter until she came to the same conclusion always reached by those enjoying lives of privilege, which is that such inequities are all for the best, and that there wasn't all that much she could do about them anyway. Her liberal compassion had been satisfied by the heartfelt promise to herself that if she ever bought an RV again, she would take care to act more responsibly. And this is what she holds in mind as the interim pod carries her into the gleaming white expanse of the very showroom where 15-year-old Molly June awaits a passenger. Installation Molly June's contentment is like the surface of a vast Pacific Ocean, unstirred by tide or wind. The events of her life plunge into that mirrored surface without effect, raising nary a ripple or storm. It remains unmarked even now, as the anesthetician and obstetrician mechs emerge from their recesses to guide her always unresisting form from the waiting-room couch where she'd been left earlier this morning, to the operating theater where she'll begin the useful stage of her existence. Speakers in the walls calm her further with an arrangement of melodious strings designed to override any unwanted emotional static. It's all quite humane, for even as Molly June lies down and puts her head back and receives permission to close her eyes, she remains wholly at peace. Her heartbeat does jog a little, just enough to be noted by the instruments, when the servos peel back the skin of her abdomen, but even that instinctive burst of fear fades with the absence of any identifiable pain. Her reaction to the invasive procedure fades to a mere theoretical interest, akin to what Jennifer herself would feel regarding gossip about people she doesn't know living in places where she's never been. Molly June drifts, thinks of blue waters and bright sunlight, misses Jennifer's installation inside her and only reacts to the massive change in her body after the incisions are closed and Jennifer has recovered enough to kick. Then her lips curl in a warm but vacant smile. She is happy. Arby's might be dead, in legal terms but they still love their passengers. Ambition Jennifer doesn't announce her intentions until two days later, after growing comfortable with her new living arrangements. At that time, Molly June is stretched out on a lounge on a balcony overlooking a city once known as Paris, but which has undergone perhaps a dozen other names of fleeting popularity since then. At this point, it's called something that could be translated as Eternal Night, because its urban planners have noted that it looks best when its towers were against a backdrop of darkness, and therefore arranged to free it from the sunlight that previously diluted its beauty for half of every day. The balcony, a popular spot among visitors, is not connected to any actual building. It just sits, like an unanchored shelf, at a high altitude calculated to showcase the lights of the city at their most decadently glorious. The city itself is no longer inhabited, of course— it contains some mechanisms important for the maintenance of local weather patterns, but otherwise exists only to confront the night sky with constellations of reflective light. 
Jennifer, experiencing its beauty through Molly June's eyes, and the bracing high-altitude wind through Molly June's skin, feels a connection with the place that goes beyond aesthetics. She finds it fateful, resonant, and romantic, the perfect location to begin the greatest adventure of a life that has already provided her with so many. She cranes Molly June's neck to survey the hundreds of other RVs sharing this balcony with her, all young, all beautiful, all pretending happiness while their jaded passengers struggle to plan new experiences not yet grown dull from surfeit. She sees Arvie's drinking, Arvie's wrestling, Arvie's declaiming vapid poetry, Arvie's coupling in threes and fours, Arvie's colored in various shades, fitted to various shapes and sizes, pregnant females and impregnated males, all sufficiently transparent to a trained eye like Jennifer's, for the essential characters of their respective passengers to shine on through. They all glow from the light of a moon that is not THE moon, as the original was removed some time ago, but a superb piece of stagecraft designed to accentuate the city below to its greatest possible effect. Have any of these people ever contemplated a stunt as over-the-top creative as the one Jennifer has in mind? Jennifer thinks not. More, she is certain not. She feels pride, and her RV Molly June laughs with a joy that threatens to bring the unwanted curse of sunlight back to the City of Lights. And for the first time, she announces her intentions out loud, without even raising her voice, aware that any words emerging from Molly June's mouth are superfluous, so long as the truly necessary signal travels the network that conveys Jennifer's needs to the proper facilitating agencies. None of the other RVs on the balcony even hear Molly June speak, but those plugged in hear Jennifer speak the words destined to set off a whirlwind of controversy. I want to give birth. Clarification. It is impossible to understate the perversity of this request. Nobody gives birth. Birth is a messy and unpleasant and distasteful process that ejects living creatures from their warm and sheltered environment into a harsh and unforgiving one that nobody wants to experience except from within the protection of wombs, either organic or artificial. Birth is the passage from life, and all its infinite wonders, to another place inhabited only by those who have been forsaken. It's the terrible ending that modern civilization has forestalled indefinitely, allowing human beings to live within the womb without ever giving up the rich opportunities for experience and growth. It's sad, of course, that for life to even be possible, a large percentage of potential citizens have to be permitted to pass through that terrible veil— into an existence where they're no good to anybody except as spare parts and manual laborers and RVs. But there are peasants in even the most enlightened societies doing the hard work so the important people don't have to. The best any of us can do about that is appreciate their contribution while keeping them as complacent as possible. The worst thing that could ever be said about Molly June's existence is that when the nurseries measured her genetic potential, found it wanting, and decided she should approach birth unimpeded, she was also humanely deprived of the neurological enhancements that allow first-trimester fetuses all the rewards and responsibilities of citizenship. She never developed enough to fear the passage that awaited her, and never knew how sadly limited her existence would be. She spent her all-too-brief life in utero, ignorant of all the blessings that would forever be denied her, and has been kept safe and content and happy and drugged and stupid since birth. After all, as a wise person once said, it takes a perfect vassal to make a perfect vessel. Nobody can say that there's anything wrong about that. But the disposition of people like her, 
that makes the lives of people like Jennifer Axioma Singh possible remains a distasteful thing decent people just don't talk about. Jennifer's hunger to experience birth from the point of view of a mother, grunting and sweating to expel another unfortunate like Molly June out of the only world that matters, into the world of cold slavery, thus strikes the vast majority as offensive, scandalous, unfeeling, selfish, and cruel. But since nobody has ever imagined a citizen demented enough to want such a thing, nobody has ever thought to make it against the law. So the powers that be indulge Jennifer's perversity, while swiftly passing laws to ensure that nobody will ever be permitted such license ever again. And all the machinery of modern medicine is turned to the problem of just how to give her what she wants. And, before long, wearing Molly June as proxy, she gets knocked up. Implantation There is no need for any messy copulation. Sex, as conducted through RVs, still makes the world go round, prompting the usual number of bittersweet affairs, tempestuous breakups, turbulent love triangles, and silly love songs. In her younger days, before the practice palled out of sheer repetition, Jennifer had worn out several RVs fucking like a bunny. But there has never been any danger of unwanted conception at any time, not with the only possible source of modal sperm being the nurseries that manufacture it as needed without recourse to nasty, antiquated testes. These days, zygotes and embryos are the province of the assembly line. Growing one inside an RV, let alone one already occupied by a human being, presents all manner of bureaucratic difficulties involving the construction of new protocols and the rearranging of accepted paradigms and any amount of official eye-rolling. But once all is said and done, the procedures turn out to be quite simple— and the surgeons have little difficulty providing Molly June with a second womb capable of growing Jennifer Axioma Singh's daughter, while Jennifer Axioma Singh herself floats unchanging a few protected membranes away. Unlike the womb that houses Jennifer, this one will not be wired in any way. Its occupant will not be able to influence Molly June's actions or enjoy the full spectrum of Molly June's senses. She will not understand, except in the most primitive, undeveloped way— what or where she is, or how well she's being cared for. Literally next to Jennifer Axioma Singh, she will be, by all reasonable comparisons, a mindless idiot. But she will live and grow for as long as it takes for this entire perverse whim of Jennifer's to fully play itself out. Gestation 1 In the months that follow, Jennifer Axioma Singh enjoys a novel form of celebrity— this is hardly anything new for her, of course, as she has been a celebrity several times before, and if she lived her expected lifespan, expects to be one several times again. But in an otherwise unshockable world, she has never experienced or even witnessed that special, nearly extinct species of celebrity that comes from eliciting shock, and which was once best known by the antiquated term notoriety. This she glories in. This she milks for every last angstrom. This she surfs like an expert, submitting to countless interviews, constructing countless bon mots, pulling every string capable of scandalizing the public. She says, I don't see the reason for all the fuss. She says, people used to share wombs all the time. She says, it used to happen naturally with multiple births, two or three or even four or even seven of us, crowded together like grapes, sometimes absorbing each other's body parts like cute young cannibals. She says, I don't know whether to call what I'm doing pregnancy or performance art. She says, don't you think Molly June looks special? Don't you think she glows? 
She says, When the baby's born, I may call her Halo. She says, No, I don't see any problem with condemning her to birth. If it's good enough for Molly June, it's good enough for my child. And she says, No, I don't care what anybody thinks. It's my RV, after all. And she fans the flames of outrage higher and higher, until public sympathies turn to the poor slumbering creature inside the sack of amniotic fluid, whose life and future have already been so cruelly decided. Is she truly limited enough to be condemned to birth? Should she be stabilized and given her own chance at life before she's expelled, sticky and foul into the cold, harsh world, inhabited only by RVs and machines? Or is Jennifer correct in maintaining the issue subject to a mother's whim? Jennifer says, All I know is that this is the most profound, most spiritually fulfilling experience of my entire life. And so she faces the crowds, real or virtual, using Molly June's smile and Molly June's innocence, daring the analysts to count all the layers of irony. Gestation 2 Molly June experiences the same few months in a fog of dazed but happy confusion, aware that she's become the center of attention, but unable to comprehend exactly why. She knows that her lower back hurts, and that her breasts have swelled, and that her belly, flat and soft before, has inflated to several times its previous size, she knows that she sometimes feels something moving inside her, that she sometimes feels sick to her stomach, and that her eyes water more easily than they ever have before, but none of this disturbs the vast, becalmed surface of her being. It is all good, all the more reason for placid contentment. Her only truly bad moments come in her dreams, when she sometimes finds herself standing on a gray, colorless field, facing another version of herself, half her own size. The miniature Molly June stares at her from a distance that Molly June herself cannot cross, her eyes unblinking, her expression merciless. Tears glisten on both her cheeks. She points at Molly June, and she enunciates a single word, incomprehensible in any language Molly June knows, and irrelevant to any life she's ever been allowed to live. Mother. The unfamiliar word makes Molly June feel warm and cold all at once. In her dream, she wets herself— "'trembling from the sudden warmth running down her thighs. "'She trembles, bowed by an incomprehensible need to apologize. "'When she wakes, she finds real tears still wet on her cheeks "'and real pee soaking the mattress between her legs. "'It frightens her. "'But those moments fade. "'Within seconds, the calming agents are already flooding her bloodstream, "'overriding any internal storms, "'removing all possible sources of disquiet, "'making her once again the obedient RV she's supposed to be.' She smiles and coos as the servos tend to her bloated form, scrubbing her flesh and applying their emollients. Life is so good, she thinks. And if it's not, well, it's not like there's anything she can do about it, so why worry? Birth 1 Molly June goes into labor on a day corresponding to what we call Thursday— the insistent wait she has known for so long giving way to a series of contractions violent enough to reach her even through her cocoon of deliberately engineered apathy. She cries and moans and shrieks infuriated, inarticulate things that might have been curses had she ever been exposed to any, and she begs the shiny machines around her to take away the pain with the same efficiency that they've taken away everything else. She even begs her passenger, that is, the passenger she knows about, the one she sensed seeing through her eyes and hearing through her ears and carrying out conversations with her mouth. She begs her passenger for mercy. 
She hasn't ever asked that mysterious godlike presence for anything, because it's never occurred to her that she might be entitled to anything. But she needs relief now, and she demands it, shrieks for it, can't understand why she isn't getting it. The answer, which would be beyond her understanding even if provided, is that the wet, sordid physicality of the experience is the very point. Birth 2 Jennifer Axioma Singh is fully plugged into every cramp, every twitch, every pooled droplet of sweat. She experiences the beauty and the terror and the exhaustion and the certainty that this will never end. She finds it resonant and evocative and educational on levels lost to a mindless sack of meat like Molly June. And she comes to any number of profound revelations about the nature of life and death and the biological origin of the species and the odd, inexplicable attachment broodmares have always felt for the squalling sacks of flesh and bone their bodies have gone to so much trouble to expel. Conclusions It's like any other work, she thinks. Nobody ever spent months and months building a house only to burn it down the second they pounded in the last nail. You put that much effort into something and it belongs to you, forever, even if the end result is nothing but a tiny creature that eats and shits and makes demands on your time. This still fails to explain why anybody would invite this kind of pain again, let alone the three or four or seven additional occasions common before the unborn reached their ascendancy. Oh, it's interesting enough to start with, but she gets the general idea long before the thirteenth hour rolls around and the market share for her real-time feed dwindles to the single digits. Long before that, the pain has given way to boredom. At the fifteenth hour, she gives up entirely, turns off her inputs, and begins to catch up on her personal correspondence, missing the actual moment when Molly June's daughter, Jennifer's womb-mate and sister, is expelled head-first into a shiny silver tray, pink and bloody and screaming at the top of her lungs, sharing oxygen for the very first time, but, by every legal definition, dead. Aftermath Jennifer. As per her expressed wishes, Jennifer Axioma Singh is removed from Molly June and installed in a new RV that very day. This one's a tall, lithe, gloriously beautiful creature with fiery eyes and thick, lush lips. Her name's Bernadette Ann. She's been bred for endurance in extreme environments, and she'll soon be taking Jennifer Axioma Singh on an extended solo hike across the restored continent of Antarctica. Jennifer is so impatient to begin this journey that she never lays eyes on the child whose birth she has just experienced. There's no need. After all, she's never laid eyes on anything, not personally. And the pictures are available online, should she ever feel the need to see them. Not that she ever sees any reason for that to happen. The baby itself was never the issue here. Jennifer didn't want to be a mother. She just wanted to give birth. All that mattered to her in the long run was obtaining a few months of unique, vicarious experience— precious in a lifetime likely to continue for as long as the servos still manufacture wombs and breed arvies. All that matters now is moving on, because time marches onward, and there are never enough adventures to fill it. Aftermath, Molly June She's been used, unsullied, and rendered an unlikely candidate to attract additional passengers. She is therefore earmarked for compassionate disposal. Aftermath. The baby. The baby is, no pun intended, another issue. Her biological mother, Jennifer Axioma Singh, has no interest in her, and her birth mother Molly June is on her way to the furnace. 
A number of minor health problems, barely worth mentioning, render her unsuitable for a useful future as somebody's RV. Born, and by that precise definition, dead, she could very well follow Molly June down the chute. But she has a happier future ahead of her. It seems that her unusual gestation and birth have rendered her something of a collector's item, and there are any number of museums aching for a chance to add her to their permanent collections. Offers are weighed and terms negotiated, until the ultimate agreement is signed, and she finds herself shipped to a freshly constructed habitat in a wildlife preserve in what used to be Ohio. Aftermath. The Child. She spends her early life in an automated nursery with toys, teachers, and careful attention to her every physical need. At age five, she's moved to a cage consisting of a two-story house on four acres of nice green grass, beneath what looks like a blue sky dotted with fluffy white clouds. There's even a playground. She will never be allowed out, of course, because there's no place for her to go, but she does have human contact, of a sort. A different RV almost every day, inhabited for the occasion by a long line of living who now think it might be fun to experience child-rearing for a while. Each one has a different face, each one calls her by a different name, and their treatment of her ranges all the way from compassionate to violently abusive. Now eight, the little girl has long since given up on asking the good ones to stay, because she knows they won't. Nor does she continue to dream about what she'll do when she grows up, since it's occurred to her that she'll never know anything but this life in this fishbowl. Her one consolation is wondering about her real mother, where she is now, what she looks like, whether she ever thinks about the child she left behind, and whether it would have been possible to hold on to her love had it ever been offered, or even possible. The questions remain the same from day to day, but the answers are hers to imagine, and they change from minute to minute, as protean as her moods, or her dreams, or the reasons why she might have been condemned to this cruelest of all possible punishments. Lightspeed Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.